Before today's episode begins, I just want to make a quick announcement. Beyond the Screenplay has launched a Patreon. So if you would like to help support our show, head to our Patreon. The link is in the show notes and become a patron. We have some fun perks, including access to two patron-exclusive episodes of the show. It's a great way for you to give us feedback and help shape the show. So check it out. Search for Beyond the Screenplay on Patreon or visit the link in the show notes. Hi. I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we're talking about the 2002 film Minority Report, and I am joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Trisha Arand. Hello, everybody. Writer Brian Bittner. Hello. And editor Alex Cayeros. Hi. So, Brian, Minority Report was all you. It was your idea. Why did you want to talk about Minority Report? Well, actually, I would argue you wanted to talk about Minority Report from a <laughs> list of like r- just a bunch of movies I gave you a long time ago, and you pointed that one out. And I thought, Minority Report. I don't know if that's really a screenwritery movie. Like, I don't know what I would mm-hmm. want to talk about. Um, and then I started thinking, I guess world building, because that's the most interesting thing about Minority Report is the world. And then when I started doing research, I realized that there was this middle screenplay. This there was Philip K. Dick's book, and then John Cohen's script, and then Scott Frank's script. And they had spoken a lot about the things that they changed, the things that didn't make sense about the book. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that I could sort of like make a hybrid video that was about that process, but also about world building, because the things they changed made the world make more sense and made the sort of ending more satisfying, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just sort of just sort of a process of kicking around a lot of those ideas until it kind of fused into something you had done with uh, Arrival and Inside Out, as we talked about, more of like a historical process kind of thing. And I, I really like that. So I thought, let's talk about how a movie kind of came to be, but also take lessons from that process. Yeah, it was really interesting learning about how much it had changed. And I I'd kind of had a, a similar experience when I did the Blade Runner video, uh, because mm-hmm. I read the Philip mm-hmm. K. Dick story that became Blade Runner. And mm-hmm. it was really interesting seeing all the things that were really similar, but were also just super different. And so it was really cool that you were able to find those multiple drafts of the screenplay and kind of see that iterative changes that happened. Yeah, I've also read Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And it's like, it's so funny how it just, it's like, yeah, the very broad strokes. If you explain the story in two sentences to somebody, they'd be like, oh, it sounds the same. But almost no individual scene or moment is the same in, in the book and the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I like them both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel like Minority Report is one I've always loved because I like film noir stories. And I like sci-fi stories. And it's such a great film noir sci-fi story. And it was really fun to see Steven Spielberg's take on it and revisiting it, I was a little worried that it wouldn't hold up, but I feel like overall I really enjoyed watching it again. Yeah. You guys. Well, I mean, the thing that I really want more of in sci-fi is good design fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, Design fiction is kind of defined as you're using a fiction, a piece of fiction to actually design the future, to actually Hmm. invent. Here's what the future could look like in a really deep a full-fledged way not just like oh here's one technology what if this but the whole world is built out and minority report is one of the few movies that really does that and really commits to it and it's not like a fantastical star wars world building mm-hmm. it's what would maybe washington dc be like in 2054 and it really commits to that and he did the research he talked to futurists and scientists and people who are looking at what's next he had a three-day think tank with like 15 scientists yeah and wow. you can just like and it shows side with this yeah yeah it shows because it it it's the kind of sci-fi that i just 
why don't we have more of this? And I'm sure it's because it's hard. You have to really do the research. <laughs> but um, I really think it's it's such an impressive feat of full-fledged world building that's not just kind of a fantasy world building, but truly trying to think 10 steps ahead. Where's gonna, where are we going to be with privacy, mm-hmm. with the way that our bodies are being scanned, the way advertising is directed towards us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't happen the yeah. way he thought exactly, but it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely happened. Just scroll on your Instagram and you'll see some creepy ads that are yeah. targeted right towards you somehow. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. I like that term, design fiction. I don't think I've ever heard it before, but it's so apt in terms of this movie. And I think that's part of the reason why... Uh, this story, I mean, really comes together because it feels near enough and it's, you know, I don't know what year is it supposedly set in, Brian? 2054? It's 2054, yeah. Yeah. Okay. See, that actually feels realistic. Right. I mean, it's not flying cars. They have these, like, you know, magnetic system and then they have, which we have self-driving cars like that's a thing now where the car is taking him where he's going whether he wants to go there or not that kind of thing Mm -hmm. you know and then exploring obviously we were talking about all the advertising and stuff like that in holograms they've got the he's got the holograms Mm -hmm. in his house it's like all of that is really within reach I i don't think there's anything funnier than you know watching like back to the future now where that date has now come and gone (laughs) and we don't have any of that stuff so the work that they put into it obviously really shows but it also really enables you to let go of some of those elements when you see them which is exactly what the video is about because we don't need to have all of that explained to us. It is close enough that it's not so far away that there has to be a ton of exposition of like, this is how the cars work. We don't need that scene because we understand that those are cars. And so it enables the story to really focus on the story and really focus on the character, which is that arc is what keeps it all together and keeps it engaging and keeps it human when it could just devolve into gadget, gadget, left and right. Right. That's a really good point that even though the design fiction is so front and center, it's never what the story is about. You know, Mm -hmm. like we said in the video, the pre-crime system is the only important technology, really. Everything else is just kind of part of the mise-en-scene as he's moving through this world. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not about that. It's kind of an interesting litmus test of like if it's, a realistic near future like you don't need to explain everything because Mm -hmm. you know everyone can just you know picture themselves 10 years in the future and understand like yeah this is what cars will be Mm -hmm. without having to like hold the audience's hand and and do it that way it's the word i use a lot of time is incidental uh which is things that whether it's fantasy or or sci-fi things that are just there and they enrich the the tapestry of what you're watching but mm. you know in children and men like the speedometer is like on the windshield yeah you yeah, know yeah. and it's like mm. nobody ever has to draw call attention to it i understand it but it just makes me go especially in a movie like children and men which feels so right. unfuturistic it adds to that like no we are in the future even if like everything's gone to hell yeah. um and uh i love i know it's like a little corny but uh i think it's prisoner of azkaban the third harry potter movie where they go into the uh, it's the leaky cauldron i think for the first time okay and there's just like there's a guy stirring his drink with his finger like his finger is moving and like the drink is stirring you know and like there's just a lot of that little like here's the way this world works we don't need to like call attention to it we don't need to like show you how cool it is it's just like it's going to be there in the background if you're paying attention i like that well corona is like the master of that right you know he's right exactly (laughs) he's just so good at like i mean in roma every everything he does Mm -hmm. he just like lets that stuff 
be in the frame and enriching the world, but he never is like, look at this thing, look at this thing. Right. It's, it's yeah, he's such a master. Yeah. I love and, him. And clumsy world building really draws attention to itself in a negative way. Right. Um, when and, even some of the earlier Harry Potter films, yeah. it probably would have been a close up of the you know, the spoon well, moving by itself, you know, because it's like, look at the magic and <laughs> fine. Right. Yeah. But it's Columbus was like the, the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> right. It was like yeah. kids seeing a giant thing and looking at it and look how surprised they are by the giant yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. fine. But there's something so elegant about the, the Alfonso yeah. Cuaron approach. Yeah, exactly. And in this case, the Spielberg approach. Yes. Mm-hmm. I recently got to be on a friend's podcast and we got to talk about AI, which he made right before this. And oh, he made it before this. That's he, right. It he made it. 90s. It was right before this. What like really? a what a little moment for Spielberg. Yeah. It's like amazing yeah. future worlds he was building. Yeah. yeah, and they definitely aesthetically sort of are in conversation. They feel related. Yeah, they yeah. do. Thematically, they're not really that linked at mm. all. Um, but you know, even in AI, which has its many problems as a movie, <laughs> <laughs> it does have the same sort of like. It, it works really well because a lot of there's a lot of faith in the audience, basically, of just like, I'm going to show you this thing. You can do it. Like, I don't have to hold your hand all the way through it, which we see from our best filmmakers all the time, both, you know, both about world building and about all kinds of story elements where they give us the pieces. They trust us to figure it out. And then they go on and do what they're trying to do, which is tell the story. So it's really smart of Spielberg. And you have that quote from him in the video of like, don't get bogged down. Don't worry about the technology. Although whoever invented those six sticks that like make people that vomit. was one of the like, that technologies was... i was like why do we need this <laughs> no! like just just shock them or something yeah. <laughs> make them vomit <laughs> that I was mean, in it, john it cohen's script i think because the philip k dick version the philip k dick story is like there's almost no tech i think they have like a flying like ship or something but other than that there's very little in that and then john cohen came up with all the eye stuff because mm. he, he was talking about how he had this like motif of of sight so that's why he chose the eye oh, thing okay. he was very glad that like it stayed that Can much stayed in mm-hmm. yeah exactly mm-hmm. uh, also that uh, was on the poster wasn't uh, it yeah. the, the woman he goes to see is iris hineman get it uh, uh, uh has the name yeah iris. i get it i get it but he had a lot of that a lot of those techie things i think he had the six sticks he had like a, a gun that shoots like goo and then at one point anderton like uses the or anderson because apparently anderton is too weird in sci-fi <laughs> and it was anderton in the original story in the original yeah so, so he, he, it's john it allison anderton in the original story okay. <laughs> and then okay. john and then paul anderson in the i don't know why like and these weird things. and then back okay. to john anderton um and then ed whitworth to ed whitworth to danny whitworth because colin farrell's more of a danny um, <laughs> yeah, man. but anyway at one point uh anderson <laughs> uses like the sticky goo gun to like shoot it at himself and then get stuck to like a wall so that when the guy when the pre-cops come in they don't see him because he's up on the wall oh, it's like a very boy. spider-man kind of yeah. moment yeah. Yeah. it's like not it's not a bad gun. script but you can really see how it's like that script would not have been as good of a movie but it's really cool to see how scott frank took john cohen's script and said there's a lot of good stuff here let's keep all this stuff and then let's expand on it it wasn't let's throw this out it wasn't let's try to stay super faithful to it it was like let's just find the best of the best and you know kind of Best of the Dick, best of the Cohen, best of the Frank, like put it all together and, you know, that's what you finally get. Mm. I think what's so interesting to me watching it is is that it's it's unlike other sci-fi noirs. Like, you know, if I'm comparing it to Blade Runner, Blade Runner is so dark and moody and mm-hmm. weird. And like somehow Spielberg was able to go to those places like Minority Report is grungy and 
so grainy, so so grainy. Um, <laughs> film grain, so much film grain. <laughs> yep, uh, and and dirty and all these things. But it was it's also like a a fun adventure noir. Like a well, a, this is the thing. You keep calling it noir, and I feel like you're you are walking dangerously along the edge of the age old debate: is noir well. style or is noir? Uh, genre and so there's you, definitely shots when the composition and the way it's it's like so it's, noir yeah but and, not you know. not when you stand it next to something like Blade Runner you know but I feel right. like even thematically though I, I think it is dealing with all those heavy things right and I think there are as you're saying Alex, the conspiracy where sure. visually, you know while I was watching it, I was like I kind of want to turn all the saturation down and see what it and I feel like it would look cool in black and white which is one of my standards for noir. One yeah. of the shots like, near the end of the movie when Whitwer and Lamar, the founder, in mm-hmm. Anderton's apartment, and they're watching the projection of the Anne Lively murder. Mm-hmm. Just like the mm-hmm. shot of the two of them, the two yeah. shot with like, for some reason, there's like fog in the apartment. <laughs> right. it's like the way it's because lit. it's a Spielberg movie. Yeah, right. and it's just, it's, but it's so noir. Like, yeah. And then the way he shoots him, and it, like, it, like the camera moves down to the gun and it's a smoking gun. It's like, it's so I classic. Love, I mean, I'm... R.I.P. Danny Whitwer, but yeah. I love his death in this movie. It's a good death. It's incredible because the first time I saw it, I did not know it was coming. Mm-hmm. I did not know Burgess was the guy. The sound is so loud when he shoots. Yes. Yeah, and and the, again, you don't see the shot. You don't see the gun. You just see him slide down in out, you know, into frame and. Oh boy, it's really emotional and like I agree with you. It's it's pure noir in its plot elements and in its character types and these kinds of themes. I just I'm, I would be hesitant to call it that stylistically, but I do think it is existing sort of in that same world. It's almost like a, well, it's like yeah, as close as Spielberg is going to come to a noir maybe because he also has you know a card jumping sequence yeah oh and, yeah <laughs> right and then they're ooh, the vertical frogger yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well and, and michael and i were talking about you know in that whole like car assembly factory scene uh, that's the one weird place where it's like wait what is this movie now because like when colin farrell and tom cruise are like on like a forklift moving thing yeah. and like now it's time for a fist fight i like that it's oh, just, and, and then just, he has to like take out his like necklace yeah, and kiss his like, rosary. Like, he got to yeah. kiss his rosary. Yeah. And it's like, Look how Catholic he is. That, is that scene, yeah. that sequence is eight pages long in the in the script. It's like one of the few things from the original from the Scott Frank script that was cut down quite a bit because it's like first of all, uh, Whitworth is like. I'm going to dismiss these cops and bring in my friend cops. So mm-hmm. right away, you're like, oh, great. We don't care if those guys get hurt because they're not Anderton's right. friends. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like these guys running all over the factory and like conveniently getting like hurt by machinery and not by Anderton. You know, <laughs> it's this sort of yeah. like friendly violence. And oh, right. It, yeah. yeah. I'm just Cause like. Because he's got that gun that like this will knock you away. Sound. <laughs> I I do like that Moving. gun and how he reloads it is fun. I like that. how he yeah. reloads it is fun. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a silly Gun. It's, it's like a non, you know, but lethal that would be like sound if, wave. If you had to fire that in an environment that wasn't yeah. a big factory, it could right. be very disastrous. That's, that's true. That's true. I feel like there are lots of little things like that where, like, also in the opening scene, which I think you pointed out well, Brian, in your draft of like it's it's such a good example of like pre crime at its best, where mm-hmm. they're right. stopping this murder before it's very clear that he's going to stab his wife with these scissors, and Anderton gets there. 
and like grabs it just in time and he like knocks the scissors out of the window and it's like okay cool you did it and then everyone crashes through the <laughs> ceiling right. and like knocks all the shards of glass onto the bed yeah. where the innocent people are just standing yeah. there right that like, is pretty goofy so and like that means those people got back in their ship and then flew up above <laughs> right. located the skylight and then dropped back down right. and that just seems very well speaking of things like that how the heck does Anderton survived the car assembly where a seat... Yeah. I don't like, know. It literally well, shows all, a seat go down onto yeah. him and then the seat is sealed in with like sparks and then he rises. As long as you cut so, away yeah. before someone dies, they don't die. Like that's but, like, moving. It literally shows, moving, it cuts yeah. from him looking up and blocking his face oh, I to know. a seat crushing him. <laughs> so I don't we have, we have yeah. Vertical Frogger, then we have the jetpack <laughs> thing where he's going through... Like, jetpacks are pretty dumb too. I'm but, sorry. But like the jetpack like cooks the burgers in the yeah. house. Yeah. And that everything. was like a most like old-fashioned Spielbergy yeah. like moment of the whole movie. It was yeah. like it's like eighties Spielberg. It's eighties. Right that yeah. whole sequence is the only part of Minority Report where I'm just like, oof, you know. <laughs> I, the opening sequence I don't actually like his direction. The very close up on Howard Marks. You know how you know how blind I am without him. And then when they take oh, the halo yeah. out, the camera stays behind the halo and like keep the camera keeps I'm moving. Okay so the halo is always yeah. It's yeah. just it's just a little. I think it's him trying to be noir. It's him trying to find those like cool close ups. Stylistic and stuff. elements. Yeah. yeah. But I want to return, if we can, put a pause on hating on this movie because we do really <laughs> love oh, it. I actually, by the way, I yeah. love, love, love this movie. This movie. Yeah. Those I are just, basically I my like big to things. laugh at the couple sure. of Spielberg things. Which yeah. they are. But yeah. I love this movie. No, there's yes. plenty of goofy Spielberg in it. Yeah. I mean, I know we, we can talk about the body horror stuff later with all the eyes and everything, but... um. Right. There's a whole period in the middle that gets pretty gross. Yeah, it does. And it really is just sort of a detour, but we are talking about that later. What I wanted to say is sort of going back to wit where he is an excellent antagonist he is a great example of a really three-dimensional antagonist who is also a person where he is a reasonable person he has been given a job he is trying to be excellent at his job and it just happens to put him into conflict with anderton it is absolutely like He's highly sympathetic for that reason. He's not, you know, Burgess ends up sort of being more of a classic, like, I'm a sneaky villain, I'm corrupt, like, you know, kind of a guy. He, They give Burgess very little to do, um, unfortunately, and then to have the whole payoff be about him. That's why Whitworth's death is so devastating, is because he's actually a very sympathetic character who happens to be at odds with Anderton, and in, in such a way that the script doesn't feel trapped or it's not trapping Whitwer in the villain role. Like Whitwer well, is sort of once free. He to figure things exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. Whitwer is sort of a free agent in a lot of ways and he's free to puzzle his own way through this. And he isn't set on blaming Anderton. You know, like it's not black and white to him. He is ready to, he wants to find the truth. And if that's Anderton is guilty, then Anderton is guilty. But if that's not Anderton is guilty, he's not out to burn Anderton for no reason. Well, although I kind of disagree with that because I feel like in the first half of the movie, he's like a little overzealous about you know he like the way he delivers in, he's even, smarmy the way he delivers his lines even is just like he has he has it out for anderton for some reason he definitely is like really relishing when you know, when he goes into lamar burgess's office and is like 
I'm gonna enjoy working here. You know, like he's mm-hmm. he's a lot of one liners like that that are like, I'm a bad guy. So, but I really like his character once they get to the crime scene with all the you know the photos mm-hmm. in the bed, and he's like, this doesn't right. Yeah, right. and I almost wish that happened earlier in the movie because yeah. it's like I really did like his character once I saw oh he isn't just the smarmy bad guy. He is there's mm. more to him than that. But you're supposed to not quite know right. how you feel about him. You know, in uh, in the Mission Impossible video, you guys talked about. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson being the fake ally opponent mm-hmm. and I, I being Tom Cruise's fake ally opponent I like that Colin Farrell is Tom Cruise's fake opponent the ally fake opponent <laughs> totally yeah because yeah, yeah. he's completely the ally by the end yeah. also yeah. in Scott Frank's script there's so much gum chewing it's like, so it's written in the script. the script oh yeah it's written it's written in the script one of like, my notes is like there's so much gum chewing <laughs> yeah. like is, why like like in the, in, in the script I it'll be so. like in the script it'll be like um Anderton's like in his office and then like one of the girls who he like works with walks by and she's chewing gum and smiling and it's like just like sort of like show, show well because it's showing like what we're kind of like taking over like uh. sort of like everyone gets comfortable with me so charming that it's like you know he's like goes to like the birthday party and like everyone's like he 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 and then you see every time he sees someone chewing gum that's sort of like oh like Whitworth's gotten to him you know it's like invasion of the body snatchers oh like the gum chewing is evidence but like that person was talking to Whitworth and like like was charmed by him and now they're like chewing gum and it's Mm. like I will say in high school like my first ever like actor crush was Colin Farrell I'm pretty sure this movie introduced me to him this was also my first Colin Farrell movie and (laughs) (laughs) I have feelings about it let's just say that He's really cute in this movie. Also, yeah, he's I like cute his a lot char- of movies. I, I mean, he is, but I like his character a lot. There are a lot of other movies that he's in, and I'm like, mm, you're probably mm-hmm. the worst. But in Daredevil, this movie, it's like, yeah, there, yeah, that, that was like his next movie after this, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Whoops, uh, bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. But that that is a really interesting observation that you made, Trisha. That it's that he's not trapped as the bad guy role, and I feel like yeah, as as soon as you feel that as the audience, and you see him making deductions that a bad guy like shouldn't be able to make right it does make you like lean in and want to invest and like kind of hope that he comes to the conclusion and i I can't think of very many other examples of movies yeah that, that do that i was trying to think of that too and i think it's really interesting we can get into the structure and the construction of this movie but i really think it is that that's what makes this possible is because the minute that witware stops becoming stops being the antagonist is when the story world takes up the mantle of being the antagonist, mm-hmm. which is what you guys were pointing out in the video is that Whitworth no longer has to be the antagonist because as long as Anderton is on the same side as pre-crime, then Whitworth has to be the antagonist. But when pre-crime itself is the antagonist to Anderton, then Whitworth can then become an ally. And I mean, really what we'd have to think of if we wanted to think of a comp would be where else does the story world become the antagonist so effectively? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that I can do that off the top of my head, <laughs> Yeah, you know, but I it, it manages, this movie manages to pull off that sort of sleight of hand handoff right there in the middle. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you have a ton of characters. You have, you know, his ex-wife and then you have Burgess and then you have Agatha and you have like then even more minor characters like Larry and Iris, the, Iris, and, Wally and Tim Blake Nelson and Peter Storm. Oh my god! Yeah, so many. Yeah. It's it's that Spielberg thing where Spielberg is, does such a good job in certain movies, you know, like Jurassic Park, or just having an ensemble yes. cast where every character feels so distinct and yes. so memorable mm-hmm. and so full of quirks and history. Mm-hmm. It's really impressive. It feels like 
in, in a lot of Spielberg movies, and this is obviously not true of all. He has such a vast filmography, but it feels like in a lot of ways he's committed to trying to cast the right person, whether or not that person is famous. And so, like, mm. obviously you have a huge A-list star at the heart of this, and and I don't think it's their first movie together, was it? Um, I think it was. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the behind-the-scenes, Spielberg's talks a lot about how he was looking for a project with Tom Cruise. Yeah, okay, okay. They, they developed happening. this project together over okay, several years. that makes yeah. sense. But yes, yeah, so you have a huge A-list star, but then when you look at the supporting cast, they kind of, I mean, they kind of weren't these big bankable stars and everything so for a huge sci-fi action movie it, it really feels like Spielberg's sort of inspired casting of like how can I in in shorthand just when you by pointing a camera at this person right convey this character mm-hmm. in, in a way that like I love and and I don't know and Samantha Morton is like oh my god yeah. unreal amazing yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 what's also interesting I've been thinking about your point Trisha you know that uh, where it has to be the bad guy until pre-crime becomes mm-hmm. the bad guy. And that the the first act of this film, I think, is is pretty long. Like, there's a long mm-hmm. time before that happens. It's like a 40-minute, I feel yeah. like, first act. and Before he gets the the ball saying it's him. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah before it's turned against him. And it, and I think I, I like movies that can do that, and maybe that's k- kind of why Whitworth needs to be so, I'm the bad guy. Right. Because right. like, like you were saying, he has to hold that for that whole time, but in that time, it lets us meet all these people and get to know Anderton and his backstory, and it allows time to invest so that then when the red ball comes, we know exactly what it means and mm-hmm. how everyone's going to react and draws us into the story in that way because because yeah for the story to work he has to actually go a little bit on his detective hunt into agatha's memory First. for a while right. you know go into the prisoner whatever that place <laughs> is the, <Right>. the temple <laughs> the, oh no the prisoner place the prisoner place yeah the full of all the different sticks of prisoners <laughs> um yeah there's a lot there's a lot he has to do before he's framed um, so it is a pretty long first act, but it's so compelling. It's, it doesn't feel like you're waiting for the inciting incident to happen. It feels like it's already happened. Mm. Yeah, it, it's tipped off by that that vision or that echo that Agatha has that then like sparks Anderton's curiosity right. and yeah, what you were saying. So, you know, we got into a conversation about the structure of this movie. It does have a really long first act. It has a really long second act as well. Yeah. Um, do you know the, Do you remember the total runtime off the top of your head, Brian? No, but I think it's about two hours and 20. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're budgeting your time differently, which makes a lot of sense because you do have sort of this mystery box at the center of this story, which is in... See, I, I set out to disprove this as noir, and now I'm just like, <laughs> I'm making your point for you. But Excellent. Yes, which is just like, you know, in, in sort of classic noir fiction, you have multiple mysteries that are being intertwined. So you have who is setting up Anderton. That's sort of the secondary mystery, but then which is the more urgent one that's requiring more of time and attention spent on it in the A plot. But the B plot, it turns out to be just as important, which is what happened to Anne Lively. Mm-hmm. And so you have the interweaving of those things. That's sort of classic noir, where the det- someone hires the detective, and he's like, I'm going to work on this case because it's the one I was hired to do. Duh, 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 duh. But it leads him into this much deeper, usually much older mystery that has mm. never been solved and it involves all of the same players and it, of course, it, it answers the a story exactly i want to go watch chinatown now yeah. yeah well there's also there's 
film noir and neo noir and tech noir. And Minority Report is usually used as a as like a prime example of tech noir. But I did some research on what the difference is between those things uh, as a potential way to get into Minority Report, and I was like, these are don't seem that much different. It just seems like <laughs> yeah. it's film noir, but set now words. it's t- it's neo-noir but with techie stuff and i'm like that's not interesting like well, that's just all noir yeah uh, and i'm sure like if you really if you can find like a way into it you can hear why people separate them but i just really couldn't and it was like this is not a common enough thing to really we're making a distinction is that valuable it's mm. kind of the same journey i went on when doing blade runner when mm-hmm. i was like okay so what is like noir what is neo-noir let's right. like comb everything and find the definitions and there just are none it's such a i feel like noir is such an interesting genre thing whatever it is that it's we all know it and it's something everyone references as like yes this is a thing i'm like i like noir but it's also like completely indefinable in any kind of satisfying way if you actually sit down and really spend time with it Mm -hmm. another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, they're all thematically about the same thing, you know, which is sort of about like corruption and human darkness and, and um, you know, those different forces that drive us to crime. Like, what is that? Why unique among animals do we do this for the reasons that we do this? And so anything that sort of treads in that and also, you know, I would say is uniquely urban, you know, pretty much sure. all noir is sort of this like urban story in yeah. in the sense of like, what is it about living in close society in cities that drives us into this and, and the systems that are in place? Because you, you have that a lot in, in detective fiction and noir fiction is you have people within a system, usually within some kind of either if that's like a detective that was formerly a cop or a corrupt officer or like what is it you know rich people usually there's some kind of like social stratification what are those systems that then drive us to crime yeah well and, and the settings in this movie i mean there's, yeah. there's that middle detour period yeah it kind of feels like it's like spielberg kind of goes into like european art house like grungy territory where mm-hmm. for some reason the eye surgeon has like snot like right, right. bursting out of his nose his assistant just flushed the toilet she's not gonna wash her hands and now we're gonna put our hands on your eyes and it was like it's almost like over the top yeah like how like grimy the world becomes well, yeah it's yeah. funny because the way that like the the he did this uh bleaching the film thing mm-hmm. that makes the movie so blue and washed out and i feel like and bloomy in, the light is so yeah. bloomy around all the objects mm-hmm. yeah. and i feel like in in like the domestic part of the movie it doesn't really work that well mm-hmm. but i feel like in the used future parts like what you're talking about mm-hmm. like it actually works really well yeah totally. And, and it's like there's a different director like every 10 minutes because it's like <laughs> right. it's so terry gilliam when peter stormar is coming out and he's going to change his eye and then when he wakes up it's like blade runner there's like you know projections on the wall and there's like light coming in through the window and then it's kind of fincher when the spiders are going through the building and we're seeing like over the top and through the walls yeah. and all that yeah, kind of thing yeah, totally and and i think it's it's interesting but it also just it's like every every few minutes the movie feels like it's being directed by someone else yeah i feel i feel like the period from when he visits iris in the greenhouse through when he takes agatha from the temple 
like that middle part of the movie is where I feel the most whiplash. Like, right. Mm. Where it's like, yeah, every 10 minutes feels like a different director. But then before and after that, it feels pretty consistent to me. Right. It's yeah. Just, there's, but there's a yeah, lot of strange little detours stylistically in that in that period. But then when it comes back from that into like him going through the mall with Agatha, <sighs> I'm like, oh, this looks so weird now because like now I'm used to seeing all the dark scenes. And now when it's bright right. again, I'm like, this looks so bizarre. That is where I noticed the film grain the most is, right. that, is in the mall. Exactly. Scene. Yeah. Um, and it one of the things that reminded me the most of was Terry Gilliam's Brazil, uh, mm. which is also which is very similar, like tonal tonal movie. And I actually went to a screening of Brazil and time bandits, a double feature on Saturday and uh, Brazil. <laughs> yeah. And Brazil is still great. And time bandits is still really weird and dumb. Uh, but, <laughs> but I was watching and I was like, gosh, this movie reminds me so much of minority report, not in plot really, but just sort of in tone and the way that it's done. Mm. And then I was looking up trivia on Brazil and guess who was originally considered to play the lead? Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. Really? Yeah. That would have been very different. Yeah. <laughs> well, that middle section also, I think what, what doesn't work for me about it is that there are, it, it feels like it's setting up consequences that never pay off. Right. Like when he's saying like, you don't remember me, like you sent yeah. me to prison. Like this is kind of like oh my, my payback. That, it's such a buildup. Watching that scene again, like every line in that eye surgery scene is like, pointing to he's gonna kill you he's gonna light you on fire he's gonna like make you blind he's gonna he's gonna make you like, go he's gonna wrong. do something horrible to you everything he's saying means he's gonna hurt you right and then he does but then he doesn't and, no. and everything's fine there is the and he's also thing. he doesn't go blind from the spider taking right. his thing off that's the that's the one thing that's like you know he says if you take off your blindfold before this time, you will go blind. And, and it echoes, it echoes in his head. There's literally voiceover repeated like two times afterwards. That's like, if you take it off, you'll go blind. And then and he takes it off and he's fine. <laughs> but it's like 10 minutes early, right? No, it's like no, six it's, hours early. Yeah, Is it? no, okay. It's like yeah. no, weirdly early. He's only like halfway through the, the stopwatch. Okay. Yeah. It's, just, it's all so weird that I feel like there's some explanation in there if we can like, talk why is there to have to be people, a scene but... of like the sandwiches that the rotten one next to the non it was that his punishment Gross like, out. Right. Yeah. putting a normal sandwich next to a rotten sandwich was that the punishment is that There's what a it was 50 all... chance you're gonna yeah, was that... and you could just put only rotten sandwiches if you want to punish him yeah, yeah. i don't know it was... that's how i like to punish people it's just <laughs> present them Maybe. with the option of no, but I do think what what you guys were talking about about that middle section, I do feel like from sort of um I don't know, analyzing it again through like a genre lens, uh you know, when you are in these sort of classic noir stories, you have it sort of just going back to what I was saying about like social structures and stuff like that. You have to have the like shiny good world so you have to have those scenes with burgess accepting an award or like mm -hmm. you know doing all of this stuff all this um and then hit tom cruise's like fancy apartment where he has all of the tech and like you know you have to have all of that those set status symbols and showing like the upper crust of the world in order to have that like and then the detective or the character whoever has to go down into like the grossest of the gross place yeah. to find the truth because that's where the truth lies in the human soul in the grossest of the gross place and so those sequences are like when i watch them um not just because of how they look but obviously they're designed to make you cringe and grimace and they are disgusting on purpose when but I they are sort of inhabiting yeah. thematically what anderton has to do and and honestly the plot of his missing son is the darkest of the dark mm -hmm. and the scene where he's confronting crow 
who he thinks is the one that took him. And Crow has a story and Crow's story is terrible. Um, It's terrible. And so that's sort of where you are diving into that muck of how bad can be people be. And it's really, really bad. So I appreciate that this movie goes there. Um, I think it makes the story a little more earned. Like we don't, the idea of, they get us to buy into it so well at the top where it's like, we can stop all murder, you know? And you just get like, yay, we can stop all murder. <laughs> right, sounds great. And then you're like, we can't stop all murder because of all of this. And it's the worst. It, yeah. It, it, well, it gives you, it gets you. I agree. I, I like how dark the movie is. And I think yeah. I'm proud of Spielberg for going to the places he goes in this movie. It's more, I just agree with Michael that it's like, why set up, consequences that you're not going to pay off you know why have this whole big thing about you're going to go blind and then okay fine you're not going to go blind but i really do appreciate how gross that building he's in is and i like even the kind of social commentary it makes where you have the mom yelling at the the pre-crime guys you know my kids are terrified your invasion of privacy these spiders are crawling all over them like i really like what he's doing in that sequence um so yeah, I agree. It's, it's questioning, yeah, who are the good guys and are yeah. the right. good guys that we thought they were? Like, are they not anymore? Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, and of course, the payoff with Burgess is exactly that. Right. One of the things I like about this movie is that it takes that kind of the what is justice, what is right idea that is in a lot of noir, and it makes it super sci-fi, where it's like, it makes me 100% buy into pre-crime of like, yeah. this is such a, like, if we could stop future murder. And it was perfect. Like, shouldn't we do that? Like, it's a very appealing idea. Mm-hmm. And honestly, watching it again. Right at the end where they're like, we just shut it all down. It's right. like, well, why can't they just like not put people in jail forever? Why can't they be like, we're going to stop you from killing this person. Like, we're going to get you some therapy. Like, isn't there like a middle ground where it's like, <laughs> right. you might have killed this person. Maybe you were going to not do it. Maybe. But, like, we're going to intervene, and then we'll, like, get you some help. And it seems like the rules that they kind of set up is that, like, if you know your future, you can change it. So, like, inform them. Right. Set up a system where you just, like, let people know, hey, you might murder someone soon. Maybe don't. But you also have to think this is all being run by Burgess. (laughs) Yeah, but he's gone at the end. At the end, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's probably also not like humane to be using three human beings as like that's a big as, part. Like, that's the more an instrument part. of yeah. right. Yeah, and that and that is the whole thing is that that when <laughs> all right, fine, <laughs> drugging them up and they're like. But if it's literally saving thousands and thousands of lives, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I kind of agree. Watching it again, I was like, yeah, hmm, <laughs> like maybe there's some middle ground. I don't know. The problem with nice it becomes jacuzzi. okay. Sorry. <laughs> with Wally watching them walking around. <laughs> oh, Wally. Oh, boy. Um, what a great character. Uh, I'm going to air out some of what we were talking about earlier, though, which was uh, Michael and Brian and I got into a debate in the Slack channel about what the midpoint of this movie is. Um, and they can defend their positions if they want to. But for me, the midpoint of this movie is when he takes Agatha out of the tank. And once we have Agatha as a character and Samantha Morton is doing an amazing job of being Agatha from start to finish. You can't put her back in the tank. Like that's just sort of the nature of the thing. She is a person at that point. Mm -hmm. We are able to sort of, we, the audience are able to think of the precogs as being sort of like magical beings that we don't need to have to worry about their humanity. But once you take her out of there and 
she is lucid and participating and affecting everything that Anderson does, she can't go back. She's a person at that point. And she's a very disturbed person who has had a lot stolen from her in her life. And of course, the secret at the end of the mystery of what happened to Anne Lively ends up being absolutely the story of Agatha. And so once we know all of that, then the only way that this ends is where it ends. Um, Good and, point. Yeah. In, in John Cohen's script, she doesn't even have a name. Uh, like the precogs don't oh. have names. And then when he takes her uh, and uh, like they're hanging out in a hotel room together, like just kind of like killing, waiting for things to blow over. <laughs> not, you know, no, not, not actually killing. Then his wife shows up. Um, but, uh, wow. but she, you know, he says like, what do I call you? She says, I'd never had a name. And then he names her Rose. And it's so it's no. very much what you're. <laughs> okay in the original story the precogs are named mike donna and jerry so oh no mike oh. donna and I had jerry. But, the, but the point is she doesn't even have a name until until right. as you're talking about so it's like she actually literally becomes a character in the way that you're talking about oh, she yeah. goes from yeah, yeah. being just sort of this entity in a tank to being like oh now this is a person with a name mm. well, anderton even says in the movie it's best to think of them as human yeah in, in the first act you know that's really how he thinks about them right as just these non-human in philip k dick's story they're yeah. like he uses some not PC terminology to describe like what the precogs are. Basically they're, they're not even like really sentient in the way that we would think of. So, wow. Cause you know, Philip K. Dick can go there. Right. Right. Sure. <laughs> in a way that Spielberg can't. Yeah. <laughs> era. Fair. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting. That's all valid. Fine. It's fine. She's a person. And I guess it may all make sense. I think what's, what's interesting <laughs> is like, I, I also like thinking about, like pretty much as soon as you'd pitched this, Brian, I was thinking about like free will and do we have free mm. will? And mm-hmm. I really, it's it was interesting also learning about how like each script had kind of a different take on free will. Right. And I think that is, it's something I think about a lot randomly. And it, it is interesting how you try to find that balance because, you know, yeah, people don't like to think that they don't have free will everyone wants to think that their choices matter and stuff but also we live in this world where there's physics and science and there's Mm -hmm. a cause and effect and all these things and i i like that this film really explores that and makes that like the heart of the kind of like noir crisis of it also and that it's kind of paradoxical where it's like in some ways it's a time travel movie It, it does a lot of the things that i like about time travel movies where it's, you know, somebody's trying to avoid a certain future, but everything they're doing is right. leading Creating to it. Creating that future. Right. It's, and he only uh, ends up there because he was Because he knows about it. Yeah. yeah. It's very it's very Oedipus Rex where he only leaves the town right. because exactly. that's where his parents are. And yeah, he doesn't yeah, realize yeah. he's going to meet his parents along the way. Yeah. I think that those questions are interesting. I think you do have to offer a comment on it. I would say the comment that this offers is not completely clear just because the mechanics sort of prevent it from being because you end up in that sort of cyclical logic which is like if he'd never gotten the red ball he would never have gone to leo crow that's the paradox so how in the world did burgess actually set him up right that's the question Mm -hmm. because it doesn't he he only knows about where to find crow because of the vision that he sees. because of the red ball but the idea is that if burgess is doing this burgess hires this actor okay great but even so he knows for sure the existence of pre-crime gonna find him yeah right. yeah and when did he hire the actor yeah relative to the red ball and all the, yeah. that is the one probably plot hole is just that whole setup well, and it prevents this from making sort of a clear thematic statement about free will 
I think it does a really good job of raising a lot of interesting questions. And I think they are sort of thematically interrelated enough that it still feels cohesive. I don't know at the end where we're supposed to, I don't know. And I think that's sort of the, honestly, that's sort of how we all live, right? Like we, we may or may not have free will. We will literally never know. So we might as well live like we do day to day. And we're never going to know what's behind that curtain. So I, I feel like the, what the movie tries to say at the end is that essentially if you have self like awareness or kind of a self consciousness or if you're given the facts of where your non free will behavior is leading, you can change it. So that seems to be that seems to be what the movie's saying is like if you're able to somehow know where the path you're on is going to lead you inevitably, then you have the ability to course correct it. Like with, but then it's not inevitable. I, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I think that, that's what the movie tries to do, I think, is saying, right. like, you know, because the whole thing with Agatha is like, you know your future, so therefore you can change your mind about it. Mm. Whereas if, if he was not somebody who had access to the vision of his future, theoretically, he wouldn't know that he had right. the choice. Then he would be yeah. just Howard Marks. Right, yeah. exactly. There, yeah, there, it's also changes so much between the different stories, as as you mentioned, Michael. Like uh, in in Philip K. Dick's story, there are three minority reports, and each one is a result of him seeing the previous one. So he sees the first one, which makes him do a second thing, and then he sees the second one, which <laughs> makes him do a third thing. And um, and then in John Cohen's script, uh, so many drugs. Whitwer, yeah, Whitwer, who <laughs> so is many actually, drugs. Whitwer, who is actually the antagonist, he makes a copy, like he somehow actually makes a copy, and, except Anderton's eyes are his natural color. So later, Anderton's wife realizes, like, oh, your eyes are a different color. So how could there be two? futures but your eyes are different color in each one and she realizes one's a copy and and one's not um in john cohen's script agatha rose tells uh anderson uh (laughs) keeping track of all the names um that she she says she says there's a boy across the street and he's going to get hit by this crane and there's nothing you can do about it and then he runs and he saves saves the boy and then he comes back and he says you knew I had time to save him. And she says, yeah, like we see what we see basically. And she knows the future no matter what. But in Scott Frank's script, she is waiting for Anderton to go like buy her some clothes. She's in a car Mm -hmm. and she knows this boy is going to be hit by this crane. And then she like calls the boy over and then he comes over and then the crane falls and he is saved. So very clearly saying like she is able to, because she can hmm. make her own choice, she is able to stop it. Whereas in John Cohen's script, it's basically like at one point she says, she literally says to Anderton, like, we see what we see. Sorry. As in like, there is, we see the future. There is no non-future basically. Hmm. Well, I have a question then. What do we make of Agatha's monologue about Sean's right. non-future existence where she's sitting in Sean's room and she's talking about I see this I see this I see this it's Sean growing up and being successful and and meeting somebody and and having a family of his own how do we fit that into all of this thematically I agree I don't know because I watched it again and I was like wait is this part of the mechanics of how precogs work i don't think it is is it an alternate future i mean i i have a theory of my own but i do want to hear you guys thoughts i mean yeah i think it is puzzling i I remember watching it again this time and being like is this 
literally a thing that she's seen or is this just her soaking up this environment and just kind of using her imagination of like this beautiful future that could have been or was she able to actually read his mind or were these things he was thinking when he was a little boy but those are kind of weirdly detailed future things that a little boy wouldn't like know what to think like about making love to a yeah, pretty girl right mm-hmm. yeah uh, so uh, yeah i don't know that there is a, a clear answer I'm, I'm not sure yeah, I, don't, I never, I just sort of thought of it more impressionistically than logically, mm. you know, just mm-hmm. sort of like it's a nice image. Um, theoretically, there's nothing to say that they don't see multiple futures. Right. We just like, they're only can, pro- they only can project one. So maybe all three of them see every future, but they only project the strongest one. And that's why there are, there are differences. There's dissent among them, mm. but they could, you know, she could very, it's very possible that she could see mm. this other version of, of the future. Or it's just possible she's like, hey, let me tell you a nice story because <laughs> right. I'm about to scream honestly, run at you in a second. <laughs> I like how like, the there's, there's like possible. multiple times she could have revealed that it was Lamar. You know, yeah. Like both in the VR place, it like cuts out right before his mask comes off. Yeah. And then also she, he's like, who killed like Agatha and Lively? And that's when she says, run! Right. Like, yeah. Just just wait two more seconds before saying <laughs> yeah, run. Yeah. Just tell him. It's Burgess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, my th- and I guess what you were saying, Brian, I, that's sort of always been my theory, which is she's doing them a kindness, essentially, mm, like trying yeah. to offer them a hopeful, because, and this is, you know, it's such an unmovie choice to never reveal what happened to Sean. Like, Anderton yeah. doesn't get that resolution. His mother doesn't ever get that resolution. Laura, I think, is the name of the yeah. is the name of the wife. Lisa. Um, it's Laura. 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 Thank you. Yeah, Laura doesn't get that resolution. We never find out what happened to Sean, and the way that he disappeared is so upsetting as well. And so you, it's just this like that's so well like executed. Yeah, I it think. is. Just, yeah, you know, yeah. You look away for a second as somebody swims past, and then. Like it's crazy, uh, infinitely yeah. devastating. It yeah. just yeah, it, you yeah. you know what that feels like. That moment of like you looked away and something right. happened, and yeah. now you can't fix it. And what do you do? Yeah. yeah, I mean, and and so yeah, just thinking like if you're gonna make the choice, and maybe this is just I don't know, I don't know whose call this was, but if you're going to make this really hard choice as a writer, as a filmmaker, to not reveal a central mystery sort of at the heart of the plot, then you kind of maybe have to give us, the audience, something else in the form of you have to give these grieving parents something. Right. Um. You know, Agatha cannot bring Sean back and she does not know what happened to him. And so she's just trying to provide some sort of gift of like just maybe hold on to these ideas and maybe they're a dream maybe they're a fantasy but you can try to accept them or try to assimilate them instead of dwelling on this darkness you can maybe have this other thing i don't know yeah i don't want to be cynical but maybe it was a direct result of like i'm sure it wasn't because i'm sure they wrote it in and it wasn't having to anything to do with test audiences (laughs) but i'm it very easily could have been a producer's note somewhere where it was just like, well, we never know what happens to Sean. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's say something about what happened to Sean, even if it's, and the truth is probably too terrible to write down. So let's write something better. Yeah. I think that that resonates with me. I I think that's a really smart observation that it it does provide a certain kind of Oh, I think I think you definitely need that beat with with the Sean story. Yeah. Yeah. And especially from Samantha Morton. 
It's just yeah. that much. By the way, her performance is so like selfless in this movie. Yes. She yes. is so unself conscious. She's yeah. willing to contort her body in weird ways, be in awkward positions. Like she commits so hard to just embodying what it would feel like to be this human who spent most of your life in like a tank. Yeah. And like just physically and emotionally it's so amazing yeah her physicality you get the sense when she's interacting with tom cruise's character that like he really is having to wrestle her like right like the you, weight you feel the weight yeah, yeah. You, it, it absolutely looks like he you know she abs- has so little control of how it is that she's moving she's been pumped full of drugs for however many years and just like essentially sort of trapped underwater in this stasis that he actually has to handle her in like a really physical way that a creates a lot of intimacy between them, which I think you do need because she is essentially the person that's going to save him and provide him with the answers that he needs. Childlike intimacy too. I feel like he's, he has to protect her and take care of her in this kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. I was was just going to say like human intimacy. It's just like somebody with needs that you have to be, you're the one that's there. So you have to meet those needs. Although he has his own, you know, so they have that interdependence. Do you want to play a quick game of Spielberg's original cast? Oh, yes. I've I've never played this game, but I like it. So let's start with Agatha, which is unfortunately, as much as I love her, the worst, Kate Blanchett. Oh, no. Right? It just seems really weird. That would have been pretty weird, yeah. Now, she's too sharp. She's too regal. Yeah. Yeah. Too regal. Too regal. (laughs) She is a Queen Elizabeth uh, (laughs) twice. And uh, one that I think would have worked just as well uh, or close Matt Damon is Whitmer. I see it. Right? Okay. Mm. Yeah. He's, yeah. He kind of was too big of a star at that point, though. Right. I feel like you like you like having someone like Colin Farrell who wasn't abs, you know, who wasn't. He like was still kind of new. Yeah. Ubiquitous. Yeah. I feel like Colin Farrell is a little bit more unpredictable feeling than mm. Matt Damon. Like I'm not a, yeah. like afraid that Matt Damon's going to do something all of a sudden. Right. <laughs> We're like, I don't know. Whereas Colin Farrell Colin might. Like, right. I don't know who this person is. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think we can all agree Meryl Streep as Iris Hinneman wouldn't have been a problem. No, I feel fine about that. Yeah. It would have been fine. The kiss yeah. would have been but I, do, I, love I do love the, the actress. Woman. Ian McKellen is Burgess. Okay. Yeah, oh. yeah. Max von Sydow is great. Yeah. And I love how menacing Max he is. Max von Sydow is awesome. Which is inter- so a quick aside about Max von Sydow. Sydow, Sydow. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around there. I remember seeing this movie with my parents and walking out and my brain was blown and just everything's amazing. And then either my father or my mother saying like, well, I knew that Max von Sydow was going to be the bad guy because it was Max von Sydow. Right. And that was the first time that my like young mm-hmm. brain was like, oh, like casting could give away yeah. who the like bad You cast an important person from a previous generation of actors to be, could be the bad guy in this new thing. Like when, right. I, when I watched uh, Sicario for the first time and John Bernthal showed up halfway through, I was like, nope, nope, <laughs> don't sleep with him. <laughs> it's gonna and go sure badly. enough, 10 minutes later, I was like, I told you, Emily Blunt. <laughs> I mean, it is the thing where, like, if there's a bigger actor in what seems to be a smaller part, right. you're always like, I call BS on that. Uh-huh. Like, that's going to be a bigger part. It was just weird, like, that I have this specific moment that my young brain right, where you that that was kind of got it. This, yeah. was, this was my thing in Wonder Woman where David Thewlis just strolls on screen and I'm like, uh, right. okay, yeah, he's just passing through. <laughs> don't, don't mind him. He's fine. Yeah. But right sorry, now. continue. Jenna Elfman is Lara, which fine uh, of darman okay. greg fame yeah 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 and then uh spielberg also offered javier bardem witwer hmm. speaking of like casting someone who you think is the bad guy <laughs> um, 
I mean, it'd be interesting. That, it'd be very different. Very yeah. different. Yeah. Matt Damon. It's a totally different part. You could see how Matt Damon would play the Colin Farrell version of Whitworth. Javier Bardem is like something else entirely. My yeah. immediate is he still reaction. Irish? <laughs> 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 because father's priest in Dublin or whatever. Yeah. My immediate reaction was like, too hot. Cannot do it. Oh, yeah. Cannot do it. Because like Colin Farrell's already what if really had... cute and almost to a level of distraction. What if he but... had the no country hair? Okay, that <laughs> Well, yeah, we're talking like Vicky Cristina Javier Bardem or No Country. Vicky yeah. Cristina Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, last thing I'll say on casting is like, say what you will about him. Tom Cruise is is solid. Like when he he's finds really the good. pictures, yeah. it yeah. reminded me. He's was, a movie star. Yeah. Well, he's, sure. But a lot of movie stars aren't like. They're really, not as committed really, as yeah. he is. Yeah. I mean. Um, I remember the having disliked the first Mission Impossible. Sorry, Trisha. And. You. uh never bothering with the second mission impossible when there was a third Legit. coming out i was like okay i'm definitely not going to care about this and i didn't know who jj was at the time or anything and then i saw the trailer PSH. with yeah with philip seymour hoffman as the bad guy and then he's threatening to uh you know he's i'll count i'm gonna count to 10 and i'm gonna so like blow, blow up right i'm gonna kill felicity yeah and then like Every time, like, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman says a number, like, Tom Cruise is, like, viscerally reacting. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, I want to see this Mission Impossible movie. And I loved it. It was great. Yeah, but it was, like, Tom Cruise can still, like, have those moments where you're like, oh. I love how committed he is to those movies. Yeah. And I love Fallout. I absolutely love yeah, Fallout. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, Mission Impossible 3, I think, is one of Tom Cruise's finest performances ever. Definitely. And, and honestly, Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. Like, they are really well-matched. It's, like people at their peak that are you know at the top of their game and that sequence where he is um you know he's sitting across from michelle monaghan um i don't remember the character's name but it's exactly what you're talking about it's he's running down this range of emotions he's going through all of the stages of grief he's like mm-hmm. rage bargaining <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, just yeah, going yeah. through it it's really good but in this movie too when he is screaming at Leo Crow because he thinks yeah. Crow took his son mm-hmm. that seems really intense yeah. so intense it's yeah, and then again when he's yelling at Burgess, where you know he says, "Don't you ever say his name?" because Burgess says something about Sean. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. It's yeah. Well, I think that I think the there's like a kind of a long take on him when mm-hmm. he's looking at the photo of his son and deciding, "I am going to kill this man." Yeah, that's a really amazing performance he gives. Just that this that transition he makes, just right. like. I am going to murder this person. Yeah. Like, why would I kill this person? I've never seen them before. Right. No, wait, I've been dreaming about killing this person for this long. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's yeah. really intense. So good. Yeah. So, so Such good. good <laughs> it reminds me of a friend of mine pointed out how good Viggo Mortensen's acting is when um, uh, Frodo offers him the ring and he has to like shut, mm. shut his hand and turn it down. And I think it's similar because it's just an entire change of philosophy mm-hmm. with no dialogue or anything you're just mm-hmm. watching an actor's face for like 30 seconds and watching them transition from one one state of mind to another yeah yeah what do we make i mean we talked sort of about the weird intimacy between um tom cruise's character and samantha morton what do we make of all the other weird intimacy in this movie because yeah the greenhouse kiss can you make anything of it I, 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 I guess i'm just wondering like i trust spielberg enough as a filmmaker that i was like is this thematic what are we saying why my, is there so much sexual my, tension like, where there shouldn't brain, be any my teenage brain was so confused when the old lady kissed tom cruise i was just like i'd never seen that before in a movie like a blockbuster where just randomly the old wise oracle lady like just kisses the main character for no reason and then the scene moves on and they just keep talking yeah matrix would have been different (laughs) for sure (laughs) no exactly and there's there's so much of it too but the scene that always strikes me is the one where whitwer goes to talk to lara 
Oh, oh yeah. yeah. It's also got a lot of tension. It's really weird. And it's like these people have just met and he's there to inquire about her husband potentially committing a murder. And it's bizarre. It's like yeah. right up on her. Her, her ex-husband. Although, although I wonder now, Michael says, say something, Michael. Well, I wonder if that scene, it, it if it if Whitward does have a certain like fantasy where he is Anderton or he mm-hmm. has Anderton's job, maybe that plays into that. And I feel like for me, the Iris scene, what I've been able to compile as a logic to it, it's just like uh, demonstrating to Anderton how out of his league he is. Like okay. it's such a like power play question mark thing it kind of is yeah yeah what i love about her is that she just does not give a crap like she you know she has her greenhouse full of like monstrous plants (laughs) that will kill you she's like i don't take visitors (laughs) she's obviously got a lot of guilt and weird feelings about pre you know pre-crime and pre-cogs and everything so it does feel like she yeah she just doesn't care anymore so she's like i got a hot guy in my greenhouse I'm going to kiss him while I have I him. mean, every every time she does grab his face and kiss him, I'm like, mm, same. I mean, like, I'm <laughs> I might. Yeah. But but I will say that, like, you have actually cracked this whole thing for me, Michael, right at the top of the show, where that's the, like, simmering sexual tension in, like, power dynamic and stuff. That's very noir. So mm. part of me now just mm. wonders, like, is that kind of what it is? You know, the detectives go see like a witness or whatever and she's hot and they're like there's some kind of weird tension there because that's kind of noir it's almost like he's subverting that it's just like yeah the tension's gonna be between people that are not normally right yeah yeah i paired yeah (laughs) i don't know i mean even the um the eye doctor's assistant you know yeah squeezing his butt yeah yeah. (laughs) It's, it's it's very interesting Man, Spielberg, can you come talk to us? <laughs> does anyone he, know him? <laughs> I, I mean, am I right? This does feel in some ways like one of his more experimental movies as far as just Absolutely. taking strange risks and detours and playing with things. It feels like it's at a transition point for him. Mm. He's, tra- you know, because it really was. It was 2001 when this movie came out. I'm pretty sure. 2002. 2002. 2002. Yeah, they yeah. were filming it in 2001. Right, right. Okay. When so- did Munich come out? Was that 2005? 2005. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same year as War of the Worlds, strangely. Mm-hmm. Oh, very odd. He does that a lot, like working on two movies at once. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah. in post. Okay, so, Player one in the post. Right. Yeah. So, but then think about like AI in this movie and then his previous movies. So think about like mid 90s Spielberg, which is like Amistad. Amistad. Yeah, yeah, is what I was going to say. The Lost World. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so <laughs> think like about the, the 90s movies that are Spielberg and then think about this and AI and then move into War of the Worlds and War of the Worlds yeah. and Munich and then War Horse a little bit farther along. And it does feel like he's in sort of a transition period where he's kind of figuring out the filmmaker he'll be in the 21st century. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Uh, all right, cool. Well, why don't we go around and share what lessons we're going to take from Minority Report. Brian? I want to share quickly a lesson from John Cohen before I go into my lesson, the screenwriter of the first uh, script. And he says, never adapt a good book. Always take a book with about a page of good ideas and totally change them to suit your purposes. Better to choose a short story. Better still to choose a pulp short story from the 1930s to the 1950s. They're so goofy. <laughs> Wow, and I think it's a, this is this is not my lesson, but I just think it's so interesting that he and it's true because every time you adapt something that people love, hashtag Game of Thrones, like everyone is like looking at the differences, looking at what you got wrong. But if you just take some goofy thing with some good ideas, great, you know, you're just harvesting the good idea. Before. Yeah, and that that is genuinely how I feel when I read the Philip K. Dick stories that both Blade Runner and Minority Reporter based on, which was I don't feel like 
the, the adaptation cheated it because I don't even feel like it's an adaptation. I feel like mm. it's right. something else, you know? Yeah. But the thing I was thinking about the most because of this video was the story world. Duncan Jones, who directed Moon, uh, which I love, mm-hmm. did a follow-up called Mute that came out last year straight to Netflix and nobody saw it or really even heard about it. I was really excited for it. Uh, Sam Rockwell makes a cameo as Sam Bell from Moon in it. (laughs) And it's set in futuristic Berlin, very Blade Runner, like very purposefully. Like he said, I just wanted to make a movie that looked like this. The setting of the movie has nothing to do Mm. with the story, which Trish, I know you (laughs) are dealing with a similar thing you may want to mention. Uh And then when they asked him about it, he said, well, I just liked that that was the setting for the movie. It just happened to be where it took place. And I think... I don't like with that movie in particular, I didn't mind it because I I love the Blade Runner look and I wish more movies did that, that cyberpunk kind of thing. But it did make me immediately after the movie was over say, why did this have to be set in this world? And I think Minority Report's a great example of like the story world. We talked about Shaun of the Dead where the story world is like meaningful for the main character. Minority Report takes it to the next step where the story world is literally a part of the story. Like it has to be actually the main character has to conquer the story world and i just think like that's really cool and i think you don't see that quite enough yeah absolutely Mm. um i think the thing for me uh comes back to witwer and just sort of this question of who can be the antagonist i feel like when i'm designing stories i often am just like well who is the antagonist and and kind of going for something that's somebody who's obvious you know in, in that sense um and asking instead the question who can be the antagonist like who's already in this world who is embedded in this world already that is in close proximity to the main character and might be at odds with them and and allowing that character to sort of i don't know i don't don't like talking about screenwriting like it's mystical or anything like that but sort of allowing that character to tell me or or walking around in that character for long enough to ask myself, can they be the antagonist? Because the closer the antagonist is to the action, and in this case, by necessity, where is by necessity close to the action, because he is sent there and it's his job, which is a little convenient, but he ends up getting, as we've said, there is this dynamic between him and Anderton. And so, I don't know, just exploring that for myself who can be the antagonist or what can be the antagonist can it be the story world can it be this other plot element or something that that pops up um what's blocking the protagonist scene to scene and it doesn't have to necessarily be the same thing from the start of the movie to the end um it's a liberating idea yeah awesome alex watching this movie again i'm just so impressed by the opening sequence i Mm -hmm. feel like it's such a good opening sequence it does so much so efficiently and also just as a director, watching the way he just Spielberg shoots so many of those opening scenes where he's got the magic gloves and going through the memories, I realized there's so many scenes that play out kind of in longer takes. They don't call attention to themselves as long takes, but he keeps the camera wide. He has multiple characters framed in the frame. Mm-hmm. Multiple things are happening with different characters. You have... Colin Farrell getting kind of a tutorial about what's going on. Meanwhile, Tom Cruise is sticking to the memory. Like, there's so much happening at once, and it's so efficient and so well orchestrated. And the way the camera moves even reminds me of like things that kind of J.J. Abrams stole later on mm-hmm. for like Star Trek. You know, yeah. the way he whips around the bridge in the Star Trek movie. The, he, Spielberg does that in almost a less self conscious way in these opening sequences. Well, you know, there's a video about it. 
the Spielberg Wonner. It's an every frame of painting video. Yeah. Oh. And there's a bunch of shots from Minority Report in that. Right. But that's a really awesome video that breaks down how Spielberg does this super well. I gotta like, watch that. He it's does really not good. draw attention to it. You almost never notice it's happening, but he and they're because they're not like six minutes long, they're like a minute and a half. But it's still like really, really smart camera work. Right. And and the reason they don't call attention to themselves is that the camera's always where it's supposed to be. It's mm-hmm. n- you don't feel it's a long take because there's no waiting for it to arrive mm-hmm. right. somewhere. It's always with the action. Well, and I think one of the things they talk about in the video is that he essentially treats it as if, you know, where do I want the camera in these moments? And rather than cutting between it, let's just have the camera travel to that and let it play out. And right. careful blocking and with the actors too. Yeah, right. Because well, it feels like a dance with the actors. It's mm-hmm. so beautifully done. So yeah. just watching the opening sequence again, it's just, wow, what a, I mean, he's a master. This yeah. is amazing. I'm yeah. so happy watching this. Yeah. 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 I think my lesson is also kind of director focused where I think I'd, I'd kind of not discounted Spielberg, but just I felt like maybe he had had an era and then, you know, I evolved and I became interested in different kinds of filmmakers and different kinds of films and all these things. And so revisiting it, I was uh, there was maybe some trepidation of like, oh, OK, Spielberg, here we go again. And I feel like I was just like. I felt shame thinking that ever while watching this. How dare you? How dare you think that, Michael? No, absolutely. The person who inspired us originally. I know. It's it's like some hubris or something. Like, well, Spielberg was a long time ago. Um, But I, I, and I feel like that it was he, him doing exactly the kind of story that I love and exactly the kind of genre that I love and the kind of world that I love, this sci-fi noir question mark uh, film. And then it's, it you know i kept comparing it to blade runner and i love blade runner but mm-hmm. blade runner is not fun to watch it's not something nope. you can bring everyone to on a <laughs> right. friday night and all these things right and watching it again i remember being in the theater i think with my parents uh watching it like on a friday night release night and just how much fun and just the there was an excitement and adventure and there's fun in the story while it was also dealing with these dark interesting sci-fi ideas that are very existential and all the things that i love um and so i think that's kind of revisiting it that's kind of my takeaway that that you can talk about interesting serious uh existential things but still make make a fun movie that mm-hmm. everyone enjoys mm-hmm. watching yeah where the story is just compelling non-stop right through and through yep. there's no yeah. there's no period that asks you to be you know a patient adult viewer just yeah. right no you're along for a freaking ride. Right. Yeah. You get to have both. Where it's like it's a fun movie, but you also get a really good story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why not do both? Yeah. And, and AI is less of a fun movie, but I think both with Minority Report and AI, you really get this sense of like you watched a story. Like you, by the yeah. end of it, you went on a journey, you know, that as opposed to movie. some movies where yeah. you're just like, oh, it, it's over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Definitely. Great. Well, why don't we really quick say what we've been watching this week? Alex? So I... Uh, was meaning to go to a film independent screening of plus one because mm. um, I was just curious about about it uh, and then it was sold out when I got to the theater and the next movie playing that I was fairly you know decently interested in seeing was Rocket Man uh, I'm not really an Elton John fan like I know his songs um, but I don't really care mm-hmm. uh, and so I saw Rocket Man by myself at Arclight and it was uh, it was interesting I did not know what I was in for because it's basically a musical right it's like a people bursting into song in the middle of a scene like full-on musical basically so at first I was very taken aback so I thought it was going to be like a more traditional biopic um I didn't know anything about this movie mm. um I haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody I didn't know anything about the director or anything uh once 
Taron Edgerton came in because the first part's him in his childhood. So I because was, it's a musical biopic, yeah, yeah. It was like, and it was like they did the full biopic, like starting with childhood. It's like I don't need all this, but he was great. I really loved him. Um, I feel like he brought a lot of life to the movie, and I just kind of went with it, and it was a fun musical from that point on. But it, yeah, definitely expect very goofy, uh, but ultimately kind of charming musical journey, and I. I have not seen Bohemian Rhapsody, but I've heard that there was a lot of sanitization of gayness and the life of Freddie Mercury, mm-hmm. and apparently this one did that less so, so I appreciate uh, um, that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that happened. Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Can yes. confirm. Yeah. I'm really not in the know about these movies right now, but I saw Rocket Man, and if you love Elton John, I'm sure you'll love it. One of my favorite movies from last year uh, is First Man, Damien Chazelle's movie uh, about the moon landing. It's absolutely incredible it was absolutely snubbed at the awards in a way that i find criminal and upsetting um so i it's it's a wonderfully shot movie but it got me really curious about apollo 11 when apollo 11 came out and so i finally got around to seeing apollo 11 and holy goodness it is (laughs) so incredible so if you don't know the story in 2017 they found a bunch of 70 millimeter film of the rocket launch of Apollo 11 that had never been developed. It was just sitting in canisters and it's hundreds of hours of footage and it's everything. It's people at the, at the launch site watching it's like inside um, the command center. It's, it's just unreal. And they developed it, you know, using our very best technology today and You've never seen footage like it. It's crazy. It's from 1969, and it it just looks unreal. It's so good. And then they also had 11,000 hours of audio because basically every single person who was wearing a headset during the Apollo 11 mission had all of their audio recorded. So they went through hundreds of hours of this footage, 11,000 hours oh, of audio. Exhausted. <laughs> I know. As an editor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's like yeah. a documentary doc, editor. Doc it's editor. Like, I can't imagine what they went through yeah. with this project. Oh so directed by Todd Douglas Miller, it's insane. So you probably can't catch it in IMAX anymore. I didn't catch it in IMAX. It was only I'm one week so, in IMAX, which I'm so I was so upset about. about. I missed yeah. it too. But even so, like, if you can just watch a decent copy of it on a decent TV, it is it will blow your mind, especially if you're remotely interested in history. It's just beautiful footage and it, it'll it change like, I don't know. I don't know if there are any moon landing skeptics out there. <laughs> right. But check out Apollo 11. It might change your mind. It's just so wonderful. It's so amazing how when you see 70 millimeter, 70 millimeter footage restored like that, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel old. So you're looking at these people from... 50 years ago and they feel just accessible. They're standing right in front of yeah, you. It's, yeah. It's a pretty surreal and some of the, feeling. Some of the spectator footage is the best stuff they have. Right. Because they have just like helicopter shots of like the huge insane crowd of spectators and it's awesome. Yeah. Check it out. Wow. Awesome. Brian? Um, so Minority Report made me, got me thinking about a lot of the like sci-fi movies from the mid to late nineties and early two thousands. There's, there's so many and there's so many like actor crossover between them. There's code uh, 46 with Tim Robbins and Samantha Morton, uh, which sure. I haven't seen in a long time. So I don't remember if it's good or not, but, uh, and then there's uh, Existence, the 13th floor, mm-hmm. which has Vincent D'Onofrio. Who's also in strange days, the Catherine Bigelow mm-hmm. movie, which I rewatched because I was like, 
the memory den scene in Minority Part is like the plot of Strange Days. It's like you record your experiences and then sell them to somebody. So there's literally a scene where Ray finds the main character who was married to Juliet Lewis, gets drunk and like pulls out a disc and like re- re- relives his past marriage with her. I'm like, oh, it's Tom Cruise's Sean scene with, uh, except with Juliet Lewis. So I don't know, maybe his future is better. Um, but. <laughs> Sorry. Hey now. Just kidding. Um, but the one that I actually really like is Equilibrium yeah. from I think, 2002. I remember that. That movie's yeah. great. I love Was that the, the, the Matrix ripoff movie? Pretty much. <laughs> Bas- hey. Basically, no, basically, <laughs> think someone read Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451 in 1984, watched The Matrix, and was like, I've got an idea for a right. movie. Yeah. Um, but it's Christian Bale, Emily Watson. I rewatched it unrelated to minority part i just happened to rewatch it a few months ago and it's just it's just a really fun movie like you it, you don't need it to be the best movie in the world but like it's, doesn't somebody get sliced in half down the middle at the end uh well no tay diggs spoiler gets his face cut off uh and then oh, okay. it's, it's on the floor later um right. it's fine <laughs> what are you two even doing we're just it's yeah it's fine um and there's a great speaking of death spoilers there's a great sean bean death which oh that is one of the best sean yeah bean deaths. it's an early it's an early death so it's less of a spoiler but uh but it's yeah. also sean bean so it's literally never a spoiler right right exactly and i'm like it's it's probably my favorite sean bean death which is saying a lot because there's a lot to choose from so, really? yeah but uh yeah equilibrium i really like it I have my favorite Sean Bean death, but I don't want to say it because I don't want to spoil too many things. Well, maybe because you didn't read the Sean Bean death already in the books, so you weren't as spoiled by it. Mm. True. (laughs) (laughs) Michael? Um, This week I saw Aladdin. I used my Arclight ticket. It was a fun afternoon out. There were moments that didn't work for me as well, but overall it was an enjoyable experience. it It made me feel like a kid several times and made me remember how much I loved the original Aladdin with a little bit of like Will Smith dashed on top, which mm-hmm. is like, um, all right, I'll take that. Um, yeah, a little Will Smith never hurts. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it was also fun because we got to talk to one of the screenwriters, John August. So in the next podcast episode, we will be interviewing John August, who wrote parts of Aladdin and a million other things. And he's an app developer and all these awesome things. And we had a really great conversation with him. So mm-hmm. look forward to that in the next episode. And before we end today, we're going to do something new. So last week, I asked people on Twitter to send us questions to discuss and answer on the podcast. We thought this could be a fun little addition to each episode and a way for our listeners to help shape each conversation. So today, we're going to go through and answer a few of the questions that we received on Twitter. And moving forward, this Q&A segment will be exclusive to our patrons, meaning that if you become a patron, you'll be able to ask us questions, and each episode will answer a bunch of them and post that segment to the patron-exclusive audio feed. So if you want to help support our podcast and ask us questions for a future episode, you can head to patreon.com slash beyondthescreenplay, or you can simply click on the link in our show notes. But for now, let's answer some listener questions. The first is from at Obi Sean Kenobi. He asks, what movie left a huge impact on you as a child? Brian, what movie left a huge impact on you as a child? Jim Henson's Labyrinth, for sure. Um, mm. Yeah, it's. I still love it. To, I still count it as one of my like top five favorite movies to this day. I think I loved it. I didn't see it as a child, child, probably like 12 or 13. Um, but I loved it then. And today, when you look at it, they're there are all these little clues that it's actually all a dream basically mm-hmm. and that everything she is needs to go through in her personal life she is using to project to this world there's like a picture of her mom who is presumably passed away who is an actress with 
this actor that she was married to, who is David Bowie, in this mm-hmm. like little newspaper clip, and then she goes on this like sort of sexual revolution where David Bowie <laughs> is like this like villain, but also like attractive man, you know. Um, so it's just like such an interesting example of a movie that's like a family movie that's also very adult in its themes, and the themes are buried, but they're there if you look for them. And I just think that's really cool. Nice. Yeah, Trisha. Um. So I have this memory of watching Jaws with my father when I was about eight years old, which I'm going to posit is a little young for Jaws um, because that movie is very terrifying. But it was sort of my, I don't know, I really credit my dad to my my love of movies. Like he, I don't know, he just has been a movie fan his entire life without like a lot of, without a lot of pretension or anything like that he just is sort of a movie lover and and so I remember watching Jaws with him and he was like that's Richard Dreyfus. he's also in this movie and this movie and this movie and like that's you know like he he kind of was make connecting dots to me where it was sort of the first time where I was like this is an amazing story and someone told it right sort of this awareness of the other side of movies where I was like filmmakers are a thing like No, you know, even very young, I was like, people aren't just pointing a camera at a real shark. People are creating this experience for me. And so that was sort of my first like, oh, it's a job. (laughs) I could do that job. And feeling like, I mean, obviously, Jaws is also an incredible film. um, And I would argue, like, uh, I mean, you know, the first blockbuster. So even if you don't like it, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is an incredibly important movie but don't dislike okay great well but it is it's it has stood the test of time it was as magical then as it is now um and yeah i don't know it just it was one of those things that i was like i could make movies so yeah Alex, a very similar story for me in Jurassic mm. Park, which yes. I've mentioned Jurassic Park so many times in the show already as being such a huge influence on my me life. Me too. But it was a turning point. I mean, I I remember I remember very vividly we were visiting Santa Cruz, my family in Santa Cruz for the summer. We went to like the downtown Santa Cruz mm-hmm. theater. It was like my first like really like, non animated movie theater experience, and, and I just I love dinosaurs so much. My whole childhood, so I was like, I need to see this movie. And my parents were like, You're like six or seven. I don't know if you see this movie. And I'm like, It has dinosaurs. I must see this movie. <laughs> and I just remember being like transformed by it because I felt so immersed in that film. I think you know, the sound design. Yeah, I'd never seen real dinosaurs. And I, everything was so immersive and so real, and it, it I get touched me to my core like just being immersed in a film universe that way that from that moment on it was like I want to do this I want to make movies I love that you call out the sound design we're gonna have to have a longer conversation about it because sound design is such a huge part of the filmmaking experience and Spielberg's Mm -hmm. movies are flawless I mean I will never forget how I, I actually felt cold and like like shivery during the in the rain Raptors. like car well in the Ooh, car scene like yeah. in the t-rex car scene like there's a lot of build-up before the t-rex comes out and i i very much felt like i was in that environment um as a kid and it was like how did this movie do this this is amazing yeah it's incredible yeah i mean i feel like jurassic park obviously is a great one uh i i'll go i and i want to go with star wars i feel like that's another like low-hanging fruit that i could grab on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i'm actually inspired by your story trisha i think i'm gonna say I remember my dad sitting me down because my dad was also very much into filmmaking and it's a large reason why I, I became so excited about film. And I remember he made me watch 
2001 A Space Odyssey mm-hmm. on VHS and he put it in the VCR and pressed play and it was like like this was a movie it changed everything it's like it's an art thing and I did not like it at all I did not understand it I was very young but I think from that I remembered uh, taking away that like film like movies could be art that there was like mm. this kind of other aspect to it besides just popcorn fun movies and, right. and stuff and so I think that's that was one of the even though I, I still have trouble watching it that was a moment that I was like oh like film can be art too and so I, I appreciate my dad showing yeah. me it's always a challenging movie to watch but like right. there's so much in it that's exciting right. and it's interesting so, yeah. and I have it on 4k blu-ray Michael nice. oh okay. yeah it rewards you for watching yes. it yeah um okay next question rajiv rao asks what is your process for studying scripts uh trisha do you want to take a stab at this one sure i mean i started reading scripts basically as early as i could um and to this day i kind of approach them i mean and i also worked as a reader for a while um when i was interning here in la and and so like which i i i absolutely not even interning but just reading methodically is something I absolutely recommend. Um, and reading good scripts as well as bad ones. I do think bad scripts are very instructive. And so I think, yeah, just quantity is helpful. Working your way through a huge stack of scripts where it really forces you to boil down story elements and boil down like character motivations and stuff like that. Uh, it's It's really instructive and... I mean, I don't, I'm trying to think now, like, do I annotate when I read? Very, very infrequently. I I really just try because the goal of the screenwriter is to communicate as evocatively as possible what the experience would be of watching this movie. And so, like, if if you are taken out of it at any certain point where you're like, I should write a note about that, then the screenwriter is probably not doing his or her job. And so, I don't know, I just... As I read, I try to let myself be absorbed into the movie the way that I would when I'm watching a movie. And then at the end, I kind of step back and take a more analytical standpoint to it. Um, I don't know. I have, I guess it depends also on the purpose. So my my experience is very specific because I, these days, would be reading scripts for a variety of reasons, you know. So sure. um, take that for what it's worth. It's interesting because I think my process for setting scripts is almost exactly the opposite. Where oh, interesting. I, I feel like... Annotate extensively. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh. Where I would, when I used to, you know, in film school and, and throughout my 20s, essentially, I would try to like sit down and read a screenplay and like, I'm supposed to learn from this. Then I'd be reading it and would ultimately just start playing the movie in my head. And then the, it would end. And I was like, well, I don't think I've actually gained anything from that. So it wasn't until I started using, and this is partially because of my iPad. I'm a big fan of the iPad Pro and the iPad Pencil. Or we the know. Apple Pencil, yes. Um, but being able to read a screenplay and take notes constantly so that I didn't let myself slip into just kind of playing the movie in my head um, is what helped me be able to identify things like structure or, you know, the scene is serving this purpose and I would draw lines where I'm like, oh, this is the inciting incident. This is the resolution, all these things. So for me, when I, when I go in and I, especially if I have a specific purpose, like I want to look at the structure of the scene or I want to see how this, you know, this script looks at tone. I try to keep that in mind and make notes about that as I'm going, because I have this very specific purpose when I'm analyzing scripts. So I guess the question is, are you a Michael or are you a Trisha? (laughs) The eternal question, really. (laughs) 
Alex? I mean, I'm more of a Trisha, I think. Because I, <laughs> I, I just, I do enjoy, I, when I read a good script, I do get, enjoy getting swept up in it and, and having the experience the screenwriter wants me to have, which mm. is, it's supposed to feel like you're watching the movie and you're just, you know, turning the pages and just swept mm. along. Um, but I've been trying to work a little more Michael into my screenplay reading recently, just for my own education, just so I can, you know, I've been trying to work on a TV pilot outline. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both have, and Michael recommended to me, "Hey, read some TV pilots." But when you read them, actually, you know, take some notes. You know, look at how the structure is playing out. If it's a five act structure, you know, how long is each act? Like, how are these acts structured within themselves? Um, and that was really informative. So I kind of have done both. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brian. Uh, yeah, for me, I think it's interesting because most of the scripts I've read in the past two years have been with an angle of making a lessons from the screenplay video. So I've at least had some idea of what I wanted to talk about with the the film. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean once you start reading the script, that can't change or evolve or add something else. But for me, it's sort of I'm reading a script looking for certain things. And when I find evidence of those things, then I'll make a note. But I think in general, I... I want to read a script. I want to enjoy the process of reading the script, but I also want to take notes. So I think sometimes it's just sort of like, let me just write down a bunch of notes as I'm reading and like say what page it happened on. And then later I can organize all that. After I'm done, I can sort of go back and say, okay, here's what actually works. Here's what doesn't work. Here's a thought I had on page 10 that never came back in the rest of the script. So it's not really valuable. I can delete that note. So it's kind of a hybrid, I think, of like, I want to enjoy the process of reading the script, but I also want to just take as many notes as possible so I can remember where certain things happened that I could go back and talk about later. That's that's how I did it too, actually. I had a Mm -hmm. Google Doc open next to my PDF script, and I just basically, as I wanted to take notes, I just noted which page it was on. Mm -hmm. And as I said, it depends on, like, the goal and the purpose. So um, I mentioned that, like, recently I was judging a screenplay competition, and and I... I wasn't exactly taking notes because they were short screenplays. So it didn't feel like, you know, I was going to struggle with recall or anything like that. But I was like a reading with a little bit more of an analytical brain to them um, and just trying to evaluate almost even the prose, which honestly does matter. Like, cause that's the whole thing. The idea of studying screenplays theoretically is that those of us that are doing it are screenwriters. I, I assume maybe someone does it recreationally, but like um, not (laughs) anybody at this table. Um, But like, you know, if you are seeking to glean wisdom, whatever process works best for you in that moment. And then also like, again, what is in in front of you? Um, It just sort of is very dependent on all of that and and, and working out your process in the moment. I don't know. That's probably not a helpful answer. No, but I feel like that's the only answer is that I think everybody clearly as even just going around our group, like everyone learns differently. And so I think being clear about what you want to get from your experience and then did you do it? Did you accomplish that goal the way you did it this time? If not, try something else next time and, and iterate as yeah, but necessary. I think it doesn't work to try to force yourself to do it the way somebody else does it. Like, like I don't think, I don't enjoy writing by hand, so I don't think I would enjoy writing with an Apple Pencil all over, all over my script. Like, I enjoy right. typing out notes. So it's just, you know, don't force yourself into a box just because somebody else does it. Mm-hmm. Or if you're like me, then you are going to want to get up pace around your house take a walk around the block sit back down read it again then yell at someone whoever's nearest for like a couple hours about what you didn't like about it i don't know whatever your process is whatever your process is um all right great 
Uh, last question is from at hello Maximad. Have you ever been disappointed by a classic when watching it for the first time? Alex. Citizen Kane. Really? Yeah. When I when I watched it for the first time, Ooh. I should watch it again. But when I first saw it, because it was like in high school or something. Okay. And it was like it was like AFI, best movie ever, you know, number one, number one movie of all time of everything, of every list ever. And then I watched it and I was just like, it was kind of boring story about this guy. And like, I get that it was like doing film stuff for the first time, but like, I didn't care really about anything through the whole movie. And you haven't seen it since? I don't think, I maybe saw it once again in college and I, then I appreciated it more, but I really haven't seen it since like, like I was like 18 or something, or like early 20s. That was like the first like old movie that I saw and I got. got. I okay. Like, interesting. Oh, I understand why this is like amazing so yeah for me it was like the story just did not have me at all so like i i I think when i watched it again in college i got like formally why it was impressive but yeah neither time i watched it in those early days was i captured by it it was yeah and i think actually thinking back again it was my dad i think that showed it to me and Mm -hmm. kind of gave me the context of it was based on the kind of real person and like mm-hmm. the, the historical context of it that i think actually probably helped a lot yeah it does, right. it it. does. Yeah. i really should watch it again oh. but i remember just being resentful because it was like i think afi was coming out with their like other lists were, around that time yeah. and so i was like wow this is gonna be like it's number one everything everywhere everybody agrees and i was like what what is this movie what is i don't know so that was my experience yeah <laughs> brian uh, you know, it's something we talked about before, what expectation does to you. you yeah. know? Right. And so the more a movie is hyped, the more the higher your expectation are. So two of my answers, which have different sort of end results right now, are Citizen Kane and <laughs> The Godfather. Um, oh, The Godfather. Yes. See, that one I got. <laughs> right. I, and, and I don't want to say like I either of them I disliked watching or anything. I just sort of thought I don't quite get why this is like the number one movie of all time. I've since rewatched The Godfather and sure. I love The Godfather. I think it's great. But the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is long. There's a lot of characters. I don't quite know. You know, it, it just didn't like How click. How old are you? Um, probably 20, something like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, twenty-two. You're 23. not wrong. It is long. It is you're slow. On, yeah. Yeah. Like, you're on the borderline of having an age excuse, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, yeah. right in the middle. I don't need an excuse. I also wasn't like studying film at the time. Yeah, like that's yeah, the yeah. thing, you know. Uh, Citizen Kane, I watched once and have not rewatched it, and right. it's like so. I have this understanding that it is a thing that I have not quite latched onto yet. So I don't. If I'm disappointed by something the first time I see it, I don't sort of apply a negative adjective to the movie i say no i've only seen it once and i've only seen it under those expectations i also just went to hearst castle for the first time uh last week and mm-hmm. charles foster kane is based on william randolph hearst so it does make me for for many reasons i want to rewatch citizen kane but if we should have a screening yeah, yeah there you go let's hang out um, but but yeah it's, it's almost like I, I, what i will say to anybody listening is if you saw a movie once that somebody told you was great that's not enough. Like, right. like mm. you just watch it a second time without any expectations. Right. And if you still don't like it, you still don't like it. That's totally fine. But like, you kind of can't see something once and kind of totally un- have a full understanding of it because you're always going in with those expectations. Yeah. yeah. Trisha, what disappointed you? Gone with the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, I saw that movie when I was in seventh eighth grade something like that we watched it in my history class uh regarding the civil war and 
listen, it's very long. If you haven't, <laughs> if you have not seen it, it will take up four hours of your life. Um, or two VHS tapes at least. And wow, I hate that movie. <laughs> well, it's it's one of those. There, you know, there's this era of movies where like they just keep going, and it's like Here's, I don't no. want to watch her anymore. And yeah, I'm done. You hit on it right there because you said, I don't want to watch her anymore. And that's exactly my feeling from the very first minute to the very last minute of Gone with the Wind. Because, you know, I don't... Look, you don't have to have a likable protagonist. You don't have to have anybody likable in your movies necessarily as long as you're grappling with something meaningful and you are saying something to me, I mean, because just being a person that's obsessed with theme, as long as you're saying something cohesive about it. So you can have despicable characters doing despicable things for three hours. And I'm here for it as long as you are delivering something that is then meaningful. But Gone with the Wind to me is not that and never has been that. I saw it when I was young and I was ignorant and I was like, listen, okay, so I hated that movie then. And then a couple of years ago, it was on TV on Turner Classic Movies and I was like I'm gonna sit down and watch this because I was stupid back then and now I'm wise and I will appreciate Gone with the Wind somehow if it kills me and you know what it sucks (laughs) 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 I dislike it from start to finish you can at me I don't care (laughs) love it love it awesome you don't care you don't give a damn (laughs) Uh, (laughs) frankly Brian (laughs) Um, I've never seen it. I probably won't. You really uh, should not. It sounds like I. There's no reason to. There really is not. <laughs> Another movie. There's no reason to see. Here we go. Ready? It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, oh my no, no, no. Wait, canceled. When you, wait, no. when did you see it? Bye. Did you watch it all uh, the way to the end? Or did you watch wrong. the twenty minutes? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah Michael. You, this isn't as a. Wait, no, no. It was. Let I, him talk. It He's was, wrong. Let him talk. <laughs> It was suggested, I believe, by Trisha for, as a potential video last Christmas. Potential yeah, we all thought it'd be a good Christmas. idea because it's a great movie. Okay, so sure. it's, a great okay, yeah. it's like the classic Christmas movie. So I like put it on. It's the best movie ever, right? It's the it's the penultimate the, Christmas the film. Ending. The, the ending. The, if it's the penultimate, penultimate. The I know ending. it's the ultimate. Whatever, it's the ultimate Christmas film. And it's just like, I I don't know. I found it extremely boring. I found it extremely hard to get through. I was just like, did you get through? No, I could not. All right, then I could not. And I I understand that. The last, like, I mean, he's asking what movies you actually watched that they should just start with the ending if that's the whole point of the movie. Because around the time that he was making fun of the girl for being naked in the bush and calling the police, and she was like, I'm going to call the police to come. And he's like, well, they'll enjoy this too. I was like, well, no, I'm going to. The I mean, girl is Donna Reed. Movie. Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> Real quick. Yeah. They do start with the ending. That's true. That's true. There's a frame story. There's They're like in the, the galaxies. The, the galaxies are angels. People are praying for George Bailey because he's Great. thinking of taking so his just, own uh-huh. life. You were still in the history part. It wasn't at the uh-huh. present day. Well, you didn't catch up to the frame story, Michael. I made it as far as I could. Wow. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, <laughs> this was, has been our last episode. <laughs> yeah. The movie that warms everybody's hearts. Uh, one, one day, perhaps I will. Add a boy, everyone, uh, but Michael. Uh, like that was the most like trolly choice of like wow. classic movie you didn't I like. Think that's the, I, 
That's just I'm trying to be real. But Listen, think, that's just yeah, where think, it is. don't you have to finish the movie before you? See I, that? Think so. yep. I think so. I think that's not a valid answer. The movie. You I will reserve my judgment for some indefinite period in the future when perhaps I finish this movie. Okay. Ugh. All right. <laughs> well, this has been our Q and A. I uh, hope you have enjoyed. Uh, moving forward, this will be a section that we do uh, for all future episodes that will be a patron exclusive. So if you become a patron, you can submit questions and we will talk about them and evidently argue about them and disagree, <laughs> etc. I hope so. Moving forward. Um, but uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody.